Hey, welcome to the Parallax Podcast. I'm Liz Brown. Harris Steinberg is the executive director of the Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation at Drexel University. Drawing inspiration from the university's commitment to becoming one of the most civically engaged colleges in the country, the Lindy Institute was created to shape innovative strategies to equitably advance cities and provide experience-based training to a new generation of urban leaders. Locally, the Lindy Institute is focused on engaging more Philadelphians in the decision-making processes that are shaping the city's future. Harris came to Drexel from UPenn School of Design, where he helped to found the school's applied research arm, Penn Praxis. Since 2001, Penn Praxis has fostered faculty and student collaboration on real-world projects in architecture, landscape design, city and regional planning, and historic preservation. Harris and I caught up to discuss his work at the Lindy Institute, his deep appreciation for the heritage of urban innovation here in Philadelphia, and the integral role that inclusive planning strategies must play in helping the city discover equitable, long-term solutions to the current challenges it faces. Can you explain how growing up in Philly has influenced your decision to focus on urbanism and why cities matter so much to you? In retrospect, my parents uh, moved to Philly in the late 40s after they got married and really sort of experienced the explosion of Philadelphia as a center of urban urban planning under Ed Bacon in the 50s and early 60s. So they were part of that reform movement. And before I was born, they actually lived within the city. My dad was very active in getting a school built in the community, a library built. And my parents would point those things out with pride as we went around them because we still lived within a couple of miles of them. My mother often shopped in the old neighborhood. So again, just through osmosis, the idea that citizens could affect change, could be part of a a reformation, if you will, of kind of city government and city planning uh, kind of got inculcated in me at an early age. Yeah, that's kind of a good segue to my next question, which is, what about your experiences in Philadelphia have led you to understand the importance of the role that communities must play uh, when it comes to developing their own civic visions for the future of the city? My trial by fire, if you will, was the early to mid-90s. My wife and I had lived in uh, East Mount Airy for about uh, 10 years, not quite a decade. We had two small kids working out of a third floor kind of attic, trying to be architects. She's an architect as well. So I kind of walked out into the streets of Germantown Avenue thinking I could join the business association, maybe pick up a couple of clients, do some facade improvements, made what in retrospect now I realized was kind of an impassioned statement about the importance of Germantown Avenue and its, and its kind of urban character. If you just looked above sort of the, the greats that were uh, kind of had come down in front of most of the shops along the avenue. Uh, again, I, I grew up only a couple miles from where we were living, and my mother had shopped on Germantown Avenue. Her hairdresser was in Mount Airy. I, I remember the avenue and even Germantown itself before uh, kind of white flight had decimated it. Uh, I knew Chestnut Hill had sort of staunched the white flight and had, was able to sort of turn things around and, and maintain uh, kind of a not necessarily a integrated community, but a, a thriving Main Street of Germantown Avenue. So I said all of that. Uh, two months later, they made me president. And suddenly I was president of the Mount Airy Business Association. I was not quite 40, had two kids in diapers, um, uh, you know, a partner, my wife, as an arch- uh, in, in business. And um, I learned fast. I mean, I, I kind of brought 
my values in terms of architecture in the built environment to the business association, but I got sort of a, a kind of slapped in the face or, or, or cold water thrown in my face pretty early on when I realized that not everybody shared my vision for the avenue. So I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, a lot of people were pissed off at me. Did, did some good stuff too, but um, kind of through that recognized how critical it is that uh, listening is more important than knowing <laughs> and that uh, it's often not who you are, but whom you represent, that uh, kind of is the, the face to the public, and that it takes a while to build trust. And we've talked about that before. So uh, my time in Mount Airy, which lasted kind of through the, the mid to late 90s, really was my kind of incubator for what ultimately became the my life's work now. I, I had no idea that's what it was going to be. I was running a business plus the business association. But when I got to Penn in the early 2000s, uh, I was able to apply what I learned in a way that uh, kind of uh, was exponential. Yeah, I do feel like when you're working in neighborhoods, <laughs> in in urban planning and architecture, it is it is more about who you're trying to serve. And even when I when I had first graduated um, from from grad school and came to Philadelphia and started working as a planner, I had a lot of struggles as a mixed race person working in West Philly. There were people who didn't like me people who thought I was overeducated, people who thought that I, I felt I was above them. None of those things are, <laughs> I, I grew up in a very low income neighborhood in upstate New York and probably the worst, the worst block that there was in my town. So I've, I've had a lot of experience living in, in a dilapidated neighborhood that needed a lot of help. And one of the things that I remember as a child was not really seeing anybody like myself coming into my neighborhood and doing the work that needs to be done, which is one of the reasons why I was personally so excited about urban planning when I found out <laughs> that it was a thing that existed. You know, when I think about who's designing neighborhoods and, and why and the, you know, the difficulties that, that it takes uh, pushing through to get to a point of success, is it's really such an iterative process. And we've had so many conversations on Parallax about the iterative, pro the iterative process of design. For me, what that raises is this whole issue of long-term planning, right? Uh, because there's definitely the immediate and the urgent and the you know, stuff that, that we've got to deal with right now and today. Uh, but we, if we don't start to, kind of, if we don't look at the horizon, then it's all going to be just um, kind of catch up. Uh, yeah, COVID definitely throws a wrench into the works in terms of planning. But the good thing about that is, everybody's has wrenches thrown into all of their works. Nobody's doing anything because this is a pandemic that's eaten up the whole world. Um, so I kind of see this as a, a unique opportunity, but still, uh, it still kind of brings to mind that dichotomy between the, the critical needs of responding to the crisis, but also thinking long-term. Um, one of my favorite hobby horses, and you've probably read about this, is, you know, I like to think of William Penn's plan for Philadelphia. This guy kind of out of nowhere kind of puts down in the midst of the wilderness this idealized plan, uh, you know, with roots that go back to, you know, Roman military encampments um, as a way to express values for his project. And we still walk those streets today. That's pretty cool. I mean, this is something that in 1682, kind of was committed to paper, uh, and it's the form of the, of the city that we know. Um, 
to me, that just sort of tells you you can do that. What you, what you have to be able to be is flexible. I mean, Penn's vision was for a city that is essentially you know, big houses on large lots with lots of orchards around them. That's not what Philadelphia looks like today. And very quickly after uh, Penn and Thomas Holm put Penn, to, Penn no pun intended, to paper, um, the waterfront started getting carved up into the tiny little blocks that, that we know and love as, as old Philadelphia. So you got to do both. You got to sort of have the big vision. Key there is the values that drive the vision. And then ultimately, you're not going to be around to see it realized. You got to have faith in human nature. But you put enough kind of guardrails and, and post-it notes in place to, uh, to at least lead the way. Yeah, I would agree. And, I, and, and, you know, that leads me to thinking a little bit more about the work that I do in innovation and some of the things that, that you've said about, you know, Philly having a history of being an urban laboratory. Can you explain what you mean by that and how cities are engines of innovation? So, again, you go back to William Penn's plan, right? Um, he had an idea. Um, he put it out there. Um, it took on a life of its own, but he definitely used in many ways his colony of, of Pennsylvania as a lab, if you will. He certainly didn't use those terms, but as a way to kind of structure a real estate deal that would enable, you know, the Penn family to, to kind of live off the largesse of the crown that who was kind of paying back the debt owed to, to Penn. But he was infusing it with values in a way that kind of was driving it forward. So, so anything we do in a city is, is a test, is a, is a, is a, a lab experiment uh, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, the creation of the, of the, of the uh, Philadelphia Water Department, kind of with the creation of the waterworks in 1812, ultimately Fairmont Park created to protect that water supply. Another long-term visionary plan fraught with all kind of politics and problems, but to this day still provides water to a million people, um, is another one of these kind of long-term plays. Politics is involved with it. It's, it's got all kinds of parts and pieces, but it's another experiment. No other city that I know of, and there could be some out there, has actually a kind of working landscape in the middle of it that pumps water out of it up to the top, into its kind of uh, uh, retention bases and, and then purifies it and sends it out to its cities. I mean, there are, there are different ways to, to collect and distribute water, but to do it through what originally was a 4,000 acre park is pretty radical and is an experiment that in many ways has proved to be kind of prescient. So I could go on about that. There's all sorts of social kind of experiments and, and experiments in labs make it almost sounds too, too clinical, but it's all about problem solving. And that's the great thing about being an architect or a planner. You're trained to solve problems. And so you come with a lot of questions and, and best practices and you try to elicit from those whom you're working with kind of what the issues are. Uh, so that's why I see cities as laboratories. Any place is a lab in that respect. But the density of the city, the accumulation of kind of culture, people, wealth, institutions, uh, just just accelerates the potential for that kind of kind of explosive growth and innovation. We're seeing it today in Philly as we're still transitioning from kind of a post-industrial economy into uh, whatever we're calling the, today's economy, that some call it the knowledge economy. Um, but 
uh, we're a hotbed clearly for for medical research, for medical training, uh, for for new pharmaceuticals. Uh, and Philly is definitely a, a center of innovation for those sectors. And, and that's a little more formal than kind of what we were talking about earlier. But but I think I, hopefully that gives you at least a sense of where my head is when I when I talk about uh, the city as laboratory. Yeah, no, definitely. And I and I look at the city. I look at the city in a pretty similar way. I'm also <laughs> pretty big on problem solving, which is why I like planning and why I like the work I do in, in tech and innovation. And another thing that I'm really big on and I think is pretty common amongst planners and architects is collaboration and uh, coalition building. It, it's integral to a lot of the work that we do in communities and a lot of the work that you've done and accomplished here in this city along with what you've referred to as a civic force field, which makes me think of like <laughs> Star Wars or something. I don't know why it just this feels, it sounds like the coolest force field uh, to have. Can you tell us uh, what this term means and, um, and talk about coalition building and how Penn Praxis and Plan Philly have been central to all of this? So the civic force field, the idea about the civic force field uh, came to me as I was um, reflecting Kind of after finished completing the uh, what became the civic vision for the central Delaware, but the uh, kind of the raucous waterfront planning process, which I was tapped to lead in 2006 uh, by then Mayor John Street, uh, but kind of through really the the agency of the William Penn Foundation's interest in um, uh, more progressive planning along the the central Delaware waterfront. Um, it's hard to remember, but back in 2006, and again, COVID has upended all of these truisms, but you know, Philadelphia was just coming out of its post-industrial slump. It, we had not too recently kind of been on bankruptcy's doorstep with Ed Rendell kind of washing, uh, cleaning toilets on his knees in um, City Hall soon after taking office in 1993, I guess. Um, if you've read Prayer for the City, Philadelphia was just on death's, death's doorstep. The Navy Yard was closing. Industries were leaving by the boatload. Um, and disinvestment, depopulation, and deindustrialization was really kind of tamping down any entrepreneurial spirit or ability for Philadelphia to thrive. And, and you know, this is a story we know all too well. Uh, folks like Jeremy Nowak at the Reinvestment Fund, um, uh, the uh, Jane Piper and others at the at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. There were there were a, group, a whole number of nonprofits whom I called planners in exile, who were kind of working to kind of stem the erosion of civic life in Philadelphia because of the uh, the, the times. So by the by the mid two thousands, things were looking up. We had made it through nine eleven. There was um, uh, a lot of funny money that was kind of flowing into Philadelphia. We now know because of the the mortgage crisis, which would soon rear its head. But uh, New Yorkers were discovering Philadelphia. Philadelphia was being called the sixth borough. I mean, there was all sorts of, um, uh, you know, millennials were starting to flock and baby boomers were coming back. And the city was poised to kind of for, for a rebirth. Paul Levy had been working for at least a decade and a half to kind of bring center city back. And there were pockets of um, bright spots that were beginning to kind of show their, show their head. But the city itself had um, kind of forgotten how to plan. And so by the mid 2000s, John Street in office, you had what I kind of 
kind of snarkily called the, the ex-wives club who were essentially running the planning commission. So you had ex-wives of Ed Randell's former law partners at Ballard Spar who literally were chair and also sitting in some of the seats of the planning commission. So there was no progressive planning going on. It was all really very political and meant to kind of control development in a way uh, that was not progressive. And a lot of us thought that that was not the way it should be, despite the fact that Philadelphia didn't have the resources, it didn't mean we couldn't do progressive planning. So I landed at Penn Praxis in the early 2000s, right around the same time the design advocacy group was getting founded. I was on the early committees of the design advocacy group. And with the work I was doing at Praxis, the work I was doing at the design advocacy group, it drew the attention of folks at the William Penn Foundation, folks at the newspapers. And we really began to uh, kind of build up a head of steam around uh, advocating for quality planning in the built environment in Philadelphia. Those sentiments were running straight up against the tried and true, any development is good development, councilmatic prerogative um, kind of stance of Philadelphia saying, hey, we know what's best. We are the local council person. If I want to put a, a Walmart on the waterfront in my district, hey, I can do that. A uh, group of us were like, wait a minute. You know, there's things uh, called riparian rights. There's all sorts of, um, uh, there's other parts to this conversation and we're not just going to necessarily take it uh, from you as a God, kind of God-given proof that you have the ability to do that. So long story short, by 2006, things were getting super crazy along the riverfront. You had on some parcels, people wanting to build buildings as tall as the Comcast Tower, I kid you not, on tiny little kind of Fishtown streets. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, the Frank DeChico was the first district councilman. His office, because he was a councilman, essentially was the arbiter of planning in the river wards, anything from Northern Liberties to, to Pennsport up to Port Richmond. Uh, and they didn't have that capacity or, or really the, the, uh, uh, the skill set. So um, again, long story short, uh, I, get the, I get tapped by DeChico's office to lead this process. The William Penn Foundation said they'll pay for it as long as the mayor signs an executive order. Uh, so, so by October of 2006, we're off and running. Um, I had maybe a staff of one at the time at Penn, where I was running Penn Praxis. I was able to bulk up, bring a couple of folks on board. Uh, and then with the funding from, from uh, the William Penn Foundation, along with the strategy we began to devise for the project itself, we created what became Plan Philly. Uh, Plan Philly was developed specifically as a, a way for me, and in this case as the leader of Penn Praxis, to run an open and transparent planning process, which is what I had pledged to do in order to take on the process. I was not going to be beholden to special interests. Um, again, it's hard to remember, but in those days there were not smartphones, there was not social media, everybody was not a photographer and or a videographer uh, they we still had newspapers that actually had an impact the editorial pages were still read by folks in harrisburg as well as in city hall um, and plan philly became the paper of record for planning and development in philadelphia through the crucible of the waterfront process so its first nine months it was purely uh enabled me to run a an open process i was able to say in uh in meetings of the advisory group of the Central Delaware planning process, which was about 40 people, everyone from the unions to community activists to, uh, to lots of other stakeholders, uh, you guys can you know, decide to 
have a cat fight here at this table if you want, but this is all being videotaped. It's going to be up on the web by the time you get back to your office. It's your choice. Um, so it, it worked. It helped. Um, but the key there is special interests. Um, the city, business interests, union interests for the large for a large part, um, it, in many ways had conspired, not necessarily uh, through malice of intent, but just to control development in the city <clears throat> as we were coming out of uh, kind of those uh, the depths of kind of post-industrialism. That was a powerful uh, block of um, uh, partner of partners, right? You had developers, unions, government, and business essentially saying, hey, we know what's best for the city. We represented academia, the public, media, philanthropy, a very different group of stakeholders. Um, and that became what I ultimately call the, the civic force field. Uh, by running an open and transparent process, by gaining the trust of the, of the Philadelphians, at least who participate, by working very closely with the media, and in this case, it was with the editorial pages of both the Enquirer uh, and the Daily News and the news staff, um, we were able to keep this completely open and transparent in a way that kind of pushed the special interests back into the shadows. They could not necessarily come out in public and say what they wanted to say because it really was not meant for public consumption. It was all about uh, controlling development. And in that way, uh, the citizens won the day kind of through the creation of this civic force field. I really like that the citizens won the day because the citizens need to win the day more often. Agreed. I feel like um, citizen planning and, 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 and inclusion in the process is, is something that's so important. And there are so many cities, large and small, that are still operating on <laughs> other people's uh, interest rather than the citizens interest. I guess what brings me to my next, my next question is, what, what fields and constituencies do we need to bring to the table when it comes to the types of experiences, experiments and research that we should be considering, you know, with all these different dilemmas with the, the built environment right now? So, you know, you put your teams together depending on what the needs of the project are, right? Um, so it's hard to say exactly who should be at the table, but as many uh, disciplines and points of view as possible in order to kind of, you know, get as much wisdom as you can in terms of um, kind of figuring things out. It doesn't mean that leadership's not important, it is. It's, it's extremely important. Uh, it doesn't mean that expertise is not important. That too is extremely important. But ultimately, uh, there has to be a, a balance of viewpoints and, and values that are uh, kind of driving kind of, uh, problem solving and decision making. Um, so I don't mean that as a way just to sort of not answer the question, but um, that's why we created at the Lindy Institute the Masters of Science and Urban Strategy program, which is, we believe, the first of its kind in this country, modeled after the cities program at LSE, which, which was a sort of joint venture of sociology and engineering. We've expanded it with public health, with law, with criminology. Uh, you know, it, it, it takes a lot to solve urban problems. It's not just one discipline. And so this is a program that's self-consciously not a planning program. One of the 
uh, when I first was coming over from Jacksonville, they wanted me to start a city planning program. I'm like, well, there's a really good one two blocks away. Temple has one. Rutgers has one. Um, what does the 21st century need? And that's where a group of colleagues and I ultimately came up with uh, what has become the Urban Strategy Degree Program. So there we are teaching students, uh, graduate students, um, the importance of collaboration. That is all about um, uh, bringing a lot of folks together to figure things out. It's not just one discipline or one person that uh, is the uh, kind of font of wisdom. You came to Drexel in 2014 as the director of the Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation. In your vision for the Lindy Institute, you write that you came to Drexel because of John Fry's vision for an engaged urban university. Can you discuss Drexel's commitment to become the most civically engaged university in the nation and what role the Lindy Institute contributes to achieving that goal? Sure. So um, I was at Penn for many years. I had been there as an undergrad, as a graduate. My dad was on the faculty there. I did work there as an architect before coming to uh, Praxis. So as, as some of my friends used to say, I, I bled red and blue. Um, I, was a, I was a Penn guy. In the mid-90s, again, we talked about Ed Rendell on his knees in the bathrooms in City Hall. West Philadelphia was going through similar kind of paroxysms of, of change. There was a high profile murder off campus, I think it was 90, either the end of 95 or early 96. And the administration then of Judith Roden, the president, and John Fry, who was the executive vice president, did something radical at the time. And instead of saying, hey, we're just gonna hunker down, add to the police force, build more walls around the campus, keep the riffraff out. They said, we are part of the community. This is everybody's problem. It's our problem. It, we have resources. We can figure out with the community uh, how to kind of manage what is a very difficult time of change. Uh, and out of that was born, and again, it's, it wasn't easy, uh, what is now codified as the West Philadelphia Initiatives, which is a five-pronged plan to, to, for Penn to kind of work with the community to kind of stabilize housing and, and commerce, to help uh, public education, to make it clean and safe, that's UCD. Uh, there were a whole number of initiatives that we take for granted today that really were born, in that case, out of the crucible of a crisis. There was a concern that students would go back to home, their homes over Christmas vacation and not come back. It was that dire. Uh, and I, as a young architect, and my wife were working with Ed Datz, who at that time ran off-campus real estate for Penn, doing some of the very early uh, projects kind of that were responding to that. So we, we were actually designed the first little mini police station on 40th Street for the effort. There was a little special victims uh, office that we also created. Um, and so as I was working in Mount Airy at the same time, trying to figure out sort of the future of Mount Airy, here was like Big Penn doing the same thing that I was trying to do in Mount Airy. And I was like, just like, this is awesome. Here's a university that for all of its kind of, um, kind of assets and resources and, uh, and kind of challenges is really trying to kind of figure this out, how we kind of work together to, to create a better city. A lot of people hated it. There was a there was a really angry group called Neighbors Against McPentrification, just that the name itself probably tells you kind of where they were coming from. They were worried, rightly so now, in retrospect, of the impact of, of Penn's investments. Uh, but again, it's iterative and it's a laboratory. Uh, so 
fast forward to 2010 and, and John Fry comes to Drexel. I was still at Penn at that time I was in the city planning department because the architects didn't know what to do with me. Um, and I started to work on one of the studios that I was working on was actually that what became Schuylkill Yards, the vision for Schuylkill Yards. We, we looked at the overbuild on the rail yards before uh, Drexel and Amtrak and all those other guys were doing it. So I started communicating with John about it, sending stuff that I was doing. And by the time I, it was ready, he, he invited me to come over in 2014. I was really taken by the seriousness of purpose that he was bringing to his kind of proclamation, if you will, of being the most civically engaged university in the country. That's a, that's a big statement to make, right? I mean, it's a big country. There's a lot of universities. There's a lot of, to unpack in there. Um, but it was heartfelt, and he meant it. To me, if I was going to leave Penn, who had in many, the institution had in many ways kind of left civic engagement behind, a lot of the work that the, the Gutman administration was doing while admirable was not at all sort of as... Um, muscular as what had been done during the, the Roden years and certainly what was happening up at Drexel. So it was a natural kind of segue for me to basically march up two blocks up 34th Street to, uh, to my new home at Drexel. I jokingly would say for my whole life I walked through Drexel, never to Drexel, because literally from 30, 30th Street Station to, to Penn was straight through Drexel. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, this is a really cool place. There's lots of really great people here. The institution is really engaged. This is my kind of place because it's really more about kind of that balance of, um, of practice and, uh, and, and academia. It wasn't just all about, uh, you know, trying to be the uh, kind of the number one academic. So that's, that's kind of where I come from in terms of, of Drexel civic engagement, the work that we've been doing. Uh, do we get it right all the time? No. Are we trying? Yes. And I think, you know, that's what's critical because it's, it's a tough one. You know, you're under, you're under the microscope and you are an institution with lots of resources, nothing like our sister institution down the street, but still we're a big institution. So how you manage that and how we get out of this on the other side, I mean, it's, it's still, we're still managing it. It will be interesting. So we talked a little bit about the, the, the inequities in planning and architecture and less than one in five new architects identify as a racial or ethnic minority. With that in mind, how do we keep the guiding principles of inclusive development and civic engagement at the forefront of, of the work that we do? Great question. It's got to be a, a team effort. And in this case, the team is everybody. Right. So it's got to come from the top. It's got to come from the bottom. It's got to come sideways. I mean, what the last four or five months have taught us is, like you said before, how things can change in an instant and everything we take for granted, all of the truths that we think are true, that that sand can shift from underneath you in an instant. So and it's not human nature to really um, be worried about that. <laughs> I mean, you're worried about it if, if you don't have stuff, but if you do, you kind of think, hey, this is how it's always going to be. Getting back to what we talked about earlier, how do we collectively, as well as we individually and, and the institutions whom we represent and, and all of our kind of different identities, keep this front and center? Um, government has a role to play clearly. Leadership has a role to play clearly. Uh, legal structure as a way to play clearly. But 
I think it's ultimately incumbent on all of us to be doing this work every day. And that's hard. Um, and I go back to something you said, you know, a minute ago and about iterative and iteration. I mean, this has got to be an iterative process, right? Like anything, any evolution and change um, has got to be, it, it's not going to, no one's going to snap their fingers and all of a sudden it's going to get better, right? We've inherited at least 400 years of, of structural racism that has poisoned every facet of our country. You know, you've touched on a couple of them. Um, the fact that this summer, in the midst of a pandemic, that veil has been ripped aside, at least for now, and people are really focusing on um, what that means. Folks like us, and in this case, I'm talking about Drexel and the institution that I represent, have to redouble our efforts, bend over backwards, continually invite. I mean, it's got to be a process that feels genuine. And what that is, I don't know yet. I mean, I think we're all grappling with it. Uh, Drexel itself has an anti-racism task force that I sit on, uh, and I, I'm on the community engagement subcommittee. Um, I manage a, a, a meeting for the president of the University of Drexel every month that brings together his senior development teams, people who are doing development both on campus and off campus, and there's a lot of attention and effort and thought being given to the impact of Drexel on the near, on Mantua, on Powelton, um, West Powelton, housing values, the, the impact that a new school we're building for the Philadelphia school system will have on housing values. There, there's a lot we've learned, there's a lot of unknowns, but you know, 95% of it's just showing up. I mean, it's really staying involved and in the game and listening. Uh, there is no grand plan. Uh, I think the, the intention is to ultimately dismantle the structural racism that has kind of invaded the country. At the moment at Drexel, there's enlightened leadership that sees the value in this. But again, I think what we learned this summer from not only first the COVID shutdown and then the, the post-Floyd unrest is that we have to do this. We have no choice. If we're, if, if we're going to succeed as a country, if the American experiment is really going to flourish and flower, we have to work at this. And that's, again, I don't have the answers, but I know that like at Drexel, as I said, we're, we're working on it avidly. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, at the moment, and I don't mean that negatively, it's, it's front of mind. How do we keep that going? How does the city keep it going? How do the community groups keep it going? How do the churches keep it going? I mean, that, the great thing about Mar American civ civic life, which is, you know, one of the, my favorite things I learned in graduate school was reading, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, not graduate school, undergraduate, history major, um, where, you know, a Frenchman comes here in the 1830s and, and goes, wow, Americans really are different. They actually organize themselves to do things. They don't wait for the crown to do it or for the military to do it or for the church to do it. They need a hospital. They get together. They raise the money. They build the building. Um, that's the American spirit that, um, again, not everybody could participate in, but we have to make that the promise today for tomorrow. Uh, we certainly have it in our DNA. We know how to do it. We now have to figure out how to do it without, you know, um, without racism, without anything muddying the waters, but truly about uh, kind of achieving the American dream. 
Yeah, I agree. And I mean, what better place to achieve the American dream than the birthplace of America, Philadelphia, right? There and you I go. think yeah, I think we are, you know, I think Philadelphia is uniquely situated to thrive beyond COVID-19. I think that there are already a lot of really interesting people here working on really interesting projects, trying to solve the problems of our city and doing it in inclusive ways, or at least trying to be more inclusive in their processes. So I think that as long as we continue to build those coalitions and include people across different disciplines and people across different levels of experience when it comes to to planning and <laughs> and citizen planners and things like that. I think that I think we'll be all right. I think Philadelphia is going to pull through this. I think we're going to probably do better than a lot of other cities. I mean, things are people are in a struggle right now, but I think that we'll come out of this stronger than than where we started. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. And one of the things that just came to mind as you were saying this, um, which we haven't really touched on, that's our our Quaker past. I mean, we've talked a lot about Penn and the values. Uh, but I believe, and I'm not a Quaker, I'm Jewish, I've, again, lived here my whole life. Um, I still think we're in many ways guided by kind of those echoes of Quakerism that kind of still flow through our veins. Um, again, another undergraduate uh, learning was from E. Digby Baltzell, who uh, is said to have coined the word wasp. And he was a man who one of my professors said was bored with a tweed skin. He was kind of, you know, old Philadelphia through and through, but he was a sociologist and, and really understood uh, and helped to kind of make clear the impact of kind of the Quaker heritage on the leadership of Philadelphia, particularly in what was then called the Protestant establishment. Um, and he juxtaposed Philadelphia and Boston, a Puritan colony versus a Quaker colony. Boston has had three um, presidents that have come out of Boston. Philadelphia has had none. I mean, there's just a very different kind of worldview that has kind of evolved out of two cities that, you know, theoretically on paper, kind of around the same time, similar kind of accomplishments, similar kind of institutions. Uh, but we have a want for leadership here. We are suspicious of leadership because we are post-Quaker. Uh, and it, it, it kills people who come into the city thinking they're going to do things quickly. You have to take time. You have to talk. It can take 50 years to do stuff. The Benjamin Franklin Parkway is evolving after 100 years. It takes a long time to get things done in Philly. Some of it's economic, some of it's social, some of it's political. And I think some of it's just who we are. So the um, and that's a good thing, right? Is that it may be maddening. We might feel like we're not getting anywhere, but uh, but we can talk it out. And if we can talk it out in a civil way, uh, we're we're light years ahead of a lot of other places. And I think, you know, to your point, yes, Philadelphia will, will survive and thrive. And I think that will be part of the key to our success. Thanks so much for listening, and a very special thanks to Harris for taking the time to speak with us. If you're curious to learn more about the Lindy Institute or ways to get involved in their work, head over to drexel.edu slash Lindy Institute. You can also connect with us or recommend future interviews by sending us a message on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or an email to info at parallaxcollab.com. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, a special thanks to our team, Christopher Heckler for editing today's episode, Helene Furan and Lee Nentwig, who also helped produce this interview. Kiliman Zigo for our music, and this podcast is made possible with support from Drexel University's Office of Research, the Excite Center, and Design Features Lab. Until next time.